It's Friday, March 1st. This is the Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me from Dub's High on the Hog Barbecue in Calhoun, Georgia, because I had a late night at work, and I got to Dub's five, ten minutes before closing time. So I stopped to get a little bit of dinner, and now I'm heading home and doing a show for the first time in a while. I don't believe I have yet uploaded Friday's show, so people are probably wondering where I've been. Here is what happened. Last weekend, I think I may have mentioned that my wife was in Gatlinburg on a little winter break trip with our kids and her parents. We got the news that her grandmother had died up in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So I about got into a car accident. Is there a stop sign there? I don't know. It's not a four-way stop. It's the first time in all the time, all these years I've been coming to dubs that somebody's been coming down that road at the same time as me. But anyway, we got word that my wife's grandmother had died. The funeral was on Tuesday. So we went up there Monday night and stayed. Monday night and Tuesday night came home Wednesday. And by the time I got home, I was behind on things. And to make matters worse, my dog died. He got he escaped the fence while I was gone and got hit by a car. So there, I was out of town. There was nothing I could do about it at all. So Thursday, I just worked from home because it was just a bad time all around. So I worked from home on Thursday. So only today have I come back to the office to do a show so that's where I've been that's why there's been no shows and that's why I haven't uploaded Friday's show so hopefully I'll get caught up on my uploads this weekend it's rainy so there'll be no soccer on Saturday so hopefully I'll get caught up on that I have a full show for you today I don't know what's in the water out there I don't know what's going on. I guess my pleas for questions have finally been heard. The inbox is as full as it's been since I started working in Dalton. I don't think it's been this full in two years. So uh, just off the top of my head, not counting today's question, I think I have one, two, three. I I want to say I have five questions in there. But keep them coming. Today's question is about the parable of the unrighteous steward. I, I, I think I've taken a question about this parable before. I know I haven't done the Bible chapter review on it because I haven't ever done Luke on the Christian commute. And this is in Luke. But that's what's in the inbox and I'm going to answer it. Today's show title is... Well, I don't know what I'm going to call it yet. It's it's basically about SBC presidential candidates. And uh, maybe I'll call it no better than... No better than uh, Clint Presley. No better than Clint Presley. And we'll get to that as soon as we do the Bible chapter review. We are still in Matthew chapter 28... We're in verses 8 through 10. The angel has just told uh, the women who came to the tomb that Jesus isn't there. And the guards have fainted in terror. 
and they, that being the women, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples, that being Jesus' disciples. <clears throat> and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. So here we have the first appearance of the risen Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. And by the way, most of Matthew, Jesus has not been killed. I was about to say most of of Matthew, Jesus is alive, but he's still alive here because he's been resurrected. But the resurrection account, I want to point this out, is much shorter than the account of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. We get 27 chapters of Jesus' birth and his preaching and how he came to be crucified. But after the resurrection, I mean, we're about halfway through this chapter, and here's finally is the appearance of the risen Jesus. Here's the deal. Jesus' mission is over, and he's going to go away. He's going to ascend into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit's going to come. So you don't have a lot of the exploits, if you will, of the risen Jesus in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew in its entirety, except for chapter 28, is about Jesus' life before his crucifixion. His life after death. One chapter. One. And here we have that first appearance. And I want to point out, what does Jesus do? or What do, what do his followers do here? What do these ladies do? They grab at his feet and they worship him. So they're like down on their hands and knees worshiping him. Yes, they're happy that that he's alive. But it's more than that. And by the way, that break, Brittany at Dub's Island, the Hog Barbecue, who always knows what I need because I order the same thing every time, made sure I had a to go half sweet, half unsweet tea, and it's good. I've been ordering water at restaurants a lot, uh, lately to be healthier and spend less money. But every once in a while, get me a little half and half tea, and it's good stuff. Not only are they happy to see Jesus, they're worshiping him. I want to point this out. Why? Because of the cults. Like we talked about the Watchtower recently. The Watchtower doesn't believe that Jesus is God. Who is the only one, the only person, entity, being, in existence, who is worthy of worship, who deserves worship? The answer is God. The Bible says they have no other gods before him. We should only worship God. Anything else is sinful. Anything else is idolatry. Why then does Jesus accept the worship of these women instead of saying, no, get up, don't worship me? Because when we see, uh, we're going to see in Acts later, People bow down to worship Paul because they think he, uh, Paul. I think they think Paul and Silas are, are uh, Zeus and Mercury. I think is who they think they are, and they're like, no, 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 don't worship us. We're just men. And people fall scared of angels, and they think, oh, there's this design being. We should bow down. No, 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 no. Only God's worthy of worship. And what does Jesus do right here? 
he accepts the worship. He does not correct them and say, don't worship me. Do you know why they're worshiping him? Because he's God. That's why they're worshiping him. That's the indication there. They've fallen down because he has come back from the dead. Yes, they're happy, but they are recognizing who he is. Not just what he has done. And he gives them instructions to go tell his disciples what's happened. And he tells them to head to Galilee. Now they've got to head home to Galilee. That's where they're from. Their business uh, in Jerusalem was to get crucified. And that happened. And now Jesus tells the women to tell the disciples to head to Galilee. And with that, we're going to end the Bible chapter review. And I'm going to take a sip of my drink. Oh, hold on. Nothing like sweet tea in a styrofoam cup. All right. Now let's go to the inbox. Do you have a question about Christian theology or apologetics? If you do, you can write to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. SethDunn88 at gmail.com. This question comes from Arkansas. Rindle. And Arkansas writes in, and he has a question about the parable of the unrighteous steward. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. If you want to, you can pause the show and go read it. So pause, unpause. And here's Rindle's Rindle's question. Why does the master seem happy about being ripped off by the unrighteous steward and... What exactly is the unrighteous steward doing to rip him off? This this is a parable that it, when you read it, it's sort of hard to understand. Because you see somebody who's bad be commended in the parable. So let me summarize the parable for you. There is a manager who manages the household of his master. And I, I don't think he's a slave because... He's going to be fired and he'll be out of the household. If he was a slave, they'd probably just give him a different job. So th- you can think of this guy in, in terms today of maybe like the superintendent or, or head man of a ranch or farm or even, even a money manager or a business manager. Some people have a lot of money and they invest it and they have a business manager who manages their, their money and their assets for them. But this guy is charged with overseeing the business affairs of this master. We assume he's a man of resources, the master is. And the master calls the the steward, his manager, in uh, one day. He calls him on the carpet, even though they didn't have carpet back then. He says, you need to give an account of your management. I I don't like the job you're doing. And uh, the manager thinks, oh man, I'm going to get fired. And what am I going to do? I'm too old to dig ditches. And I'm too proud to beg. Unlike uh, salt and pepper, he, he's too proud to beg. And so what's he going to do? And he goes, well, I know what I'll do. I need to curry some favor with some people. So he goes to uh, some of the debtors of his master. People who've 
they bought oil from him. I'll, I think somebody had owed the master some vats of oil. He says, "What do you got on your bill there?" And the guy said, "Well, I I I owe a hundred gross." And he goes, "Mark it down to 50. And somebody else, "What's on your bill?" "I owe a hundred." Mark it, and he says, "Mark it down to 80. He knows he's going to get fired, but what he's doing is he's doing favors for the people who might be able to do him a favor when he's in need. And when the master finds out about it, he compliments the wicked or unrighteous steward on his shrewdness. So, first of all, we're in the last, well, what's going on here? Well, the manager's marking down the bills. So, back in that day, as, as is the case today, when there's a business transaction and there's some debt incurred in the transaction through some kind of barter or trade, there's going to be paperwork on that. There's going to be a, an invoice or a receipt. And so, it's the manager's job to oversee these transactions. So when the customer or the debtor said, I'm, I, uh, I'm going to borrow a hundred of these things and then pay them back, it's the manager who wrote down and says, well, you owe us a hundred. He's keeping the account. So that's the evidence. Okay, there's two parties. There's a party that says, I want to borrow this and I owe. And there's a party that says, you're borrowing it from me and you owe. And we've agreed upon what you owe. Now, the manager is the one who's managing this for the for the master. It's somebody else's stuff. The master doesn't know all the balances that are owed to him. That's He's got so much going on, that's why he had, had to hire a manager. And if the manager sa- says that 80 is owed instead of 100, well, that's the word. They're going to take the manager's word for it legally. We have, a, we have this concept today. It's called real and apparent authority. Real and apparent authority. So uh, if you if you manage the pet shop at the mall, does anybody are they stuff pet shops at the mall, and you order thousand dollar dogs? I don't know why. Why did I bring? Why did I give this example? It's going to make me sad. Uh, you order thousand dollar dogs from the dog breeders, and you regularly do this from your dog supplier, and one day. The manager comes in and says, you know what? You're a terrible pet store manager. This is your last week. You're gone. If it's Friday, you're done. So finish up your business here. Now, if that manager calls the pet breeders and says, send me 10 Great Danes. And then he quits. Two weeks later, 10 Great Danes come at great expense. And the pet store owner says, well, I don't want these. He says, well, too bad. You ordered them. Here's the purchase order. He says, well, you don't understand. I fired that guy. Maybe you did, and even but even though he didn't have real authority, he had apparent authority, because you didn't tell me you had fired him, and I've been accepting orders from him since you told me I could for all these years. So the manager has used his authority, whether real or apparent, to write down these bills, and the master can't say a thing about it. Legally, so le- legally speaking, so when he finds out what the guy did. He's impressed with his shrewdness. He's not happy about being ripped off, but he's impressed with his shrewdness. Think about a football coach 
who is upset about losing a game, but he'll still compliment the other coach. Like, man, that was a great, great game plan. You ran those trick plays. You did some play action. You disguised your defenses and blitz. We didn't, we didn't know what to do. Or a general who loses a war, and he tells the other general, like, hey, man, I thought I was going to win, but your battle plan was so good that, that you routed us. You beat us. I really respect what you did. That's kind of the idea here that the manager is not happy about be, or the master is not happy about being ripped off but he is impressed with the shrewdness of the unrighteous steward and then Jesus makes a comment about using the wealth of this world to win friends in this world and if, if you stopped at verse 13 you might not understand what Jesus is doing here. He's telling this parable in the earshot of the Pharisees, and in verse 14 lets us know this. It's he's condemning the Pharisees as lovers of money and the people who love the wealth of this world and and use it wrong. But what the parable the the point of the parable is he's telling his disciples there's a wise way for you to use this world's wealth to win friends in this world. But then he goes on, he says, he who's faithful in, in a small thing will be faithful in many things, and he who's faithful in a large thing will be faithful. Uh, he who's faithful in small things can be trusted with a large thing, and who's not faithful in a large thing can't even be trusted with a small thing. So this unrighteous steward, by the way, can't be trusted. Jesus is encouraging good stewardship to the disciples. He's saying if you're faithful with little, you'll be entrusted with much in the kingdom. But if you love money, you're like this unrighteous steward. And you know who's like them? The implication is in verse 14, the Pharisees. They're bad guys. They love money and they're unrighteous. I mean, it plainly says that in the text. The Pharisees love the money of the world. They love money. But the wording of the parable is very confusing. It's very strange compared to the other parables. And you have to sort of step back and think about what's going on to understand that the people of the world are going to do worldly things to gain worldly wealth. We're not to be like them. We're to use worldly wealth the right way. So, Rendell, thanks for writing that in. Now I'm in a situation where I have a stop. I have to stop at the post office and get some checks out of the P.O. box for my neighborhood. And I'm, uh, I'm going to have to pause the show. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pause the show now. And then when I get down at the post office, hopefully I will remember to unpause the show and then I'll do the show topic on my way home from the post office. It's a short one. I almost forgot. So let's talk about the no-win situation in the SBC president race. So to me, it used to matter who, and it mattered a lot, who became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention because I thought this is the direction of a good and important entity or organization. 
Now I think the Southern Baptist Convention is past the tipping point, and it really doesn't matter who's in charge. One guy is probably worse than the next, and if anybody decent ran, they would lose. It's like, look at the United States, okay? Every Democrat is indecent because they're radically pro-abortion and pro-gay marriage and just... When I think of a typical Democratic politician, I think of somebody who thinks, hey, let's put a boy in women's sports if he says he's a girl. That's just, it's crazy backwards. And Republicans, well, you're running Donald Trump. He's a horrible person. I mean, inside and out, what a horrible person. But that's... I want him to be president. That's is how bad we are. Like, because if he's not president, it's going to be horrible. Joe Biden again. And the SBC sort of the same way. If there was a good candidate, he wouldn't win. He just wouldn't win. But you still want somebody decent, don't you think? Running that ship. So I've thought about let's let's talk about the candidates who are coming up. And Clint Presley from North Carolina was one of the very early candidates named. Now this is a guy, he's got a big church, he's not quite a mega church pastor. I think he had the support of James Merritt. Oh, my headset is wearing out, it's starting to fall down. And Clint, I'll just put it this way. Clint Presley shouldn't be a pastor. In my opinion, he shouldn't even be a pastor, much less be running as a pastor for SBC president. Here's why. I don't think Clint Presley has been a good manager of a Christian household. I don't think he should be a, manager, a, a, a pastor of a 2,000 or 20-member church because the qualifications are the same. Okay. And I thought about, well, let's write an article at Pulpit and Pen, and I'll say why. And then I thought to myself, let's say I write an article with all this damning information on it. And I published the article in, in June. And everybody's, oh, well, I didn't know this about Crimp Pressy. Who would be the next guy up? It'd be somebody, it'd be somebody like James Merritt, who's just as terrible. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to put the time in to do it. But just let me give you an idea of the kind of man who's prominent and looking to be in charge in SBC world. And by the way, I'm going to go ahead and make a bold prediction. I'm going to say that Clint Presley beats out David Allen. I'll talk about David Allen later, maybe on another show. I just found out David Allen is going to be nominated to be the SBC president. So, Clint Presley's, I'm going to say he's the favorite of the platform. And if you keep up with Southern Baptist life, you know what I mean by the platform. The guys up on stage in the official positions who really could care less about what rank-and-file SBC members and pastors think. The platform will tell you what to believe. It's like Mother from the Pink Floyd song. 
platform's gonna check out all your girlfriends for you. The platform won't let anyone dirty get through. The platform's gonna keep baby healthy and clean. Ooh, baby. You know you'll always be baby to me. The platform. Now I'm gonna go home and listen to Pink Floyd because that song's stuck in my head. Um, Clint Presley. Tragically, and this is where it was sort of a no-win situation either. He had an adult son die within the last the last year or so. Maybe the last two years. And it was a drug overdose, but I... Th- and you really don't find these things out from obituaries. you got to dig deeper. It was a drug overdose, but I don't think it was an accidental drug overdose. I think it was a on-purpose kill-yourself drug overdose. That's the impression that I have from my sources. And you think, well, okay. A pastor has an adult son who kills himself. Does that disqualify him for the pastorate? I mean, the kid was grown. You know, you, you can't control your kids forever. Well, if you dig a little deeper, and this is what's not been shared, his son, Clint Presley's son, Nate, I've seen pictures of him dressed up as a girl. That's That's what you call nowadays, what is it, transgender is what the name of it is now. But it's basically somebody who dresses up as a girl. So you think, yeah, he was troubled. Well, you know that if he dies of a drug overdose. Listen, if you die of a drug overdose, you're troubled. You're either troubled because you had a drug addiction, troubled because you were abusing drugs. Maybe it's the first time you ever took drugs, but if you're in the right state of mind and you're, you're not taking drugs, or if you kill yourself with drugs, it's trouble. All right? So he's troubled. Everybody knows that he's troubled, but then what people don't know is the kid walked around dressed as a woman. Okay. That's a perversion. Transgenderism is a perversion. And here's the deal. Trans, I don't think transgenderism just happens overnight. If you have a child who is living in your house and exhibiting these symptoms as a, as a teenager or tendencies, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to call it symptoms like, it, like you have AIDS or COVID or something. But somebody who is exhibiting these tendencies... You can tell when that kid is living in your house, especially when he's a teenager. So when the Bible talks about a pastor being having children who believe and being a good manager of his own household, I don't think that's talking about, say, 50 or 60-year-old children. And people back then, if you were 50, you were an elder. Who in the world had 50-year-old children back then? You didn't live that long. You were dead. I don't know if it's talking about 30-year-old or 40-year-old children. And I don't know that it's talking about five-year-old or six-year-old children. Because pretty much all five-year-olds and six-year-olds believe. Because you just tell them to. When it's talking about children who believe, and you're talking about somebody who's old enough to be a member of your household, and then you think, you've got a son who dresses up like a girl who's a transgender. You don't have a child who believes. And yeah, he lived his life and eventually moved out. And he, he killed himself. But it's like... What were you still doing as a pastor, Clint Presley? Like, at what point in your life 
would you say, like, I can't pastor the Lord's church and take care of God's household because I have such a huge problem in my own? And I don't think that he ever did that because he's been pastor of this church, Hickory Grove. You can just Google Clint Presley, North Carolina pastor. I forget the name of the church. Jeff Maples used to go there, the guy who does the dissenter. He, but instead of taking a step back, this guy's trying to go even further. And this is how SBC life works. Like you have a guy who's not even qualified to be a pastor, and now he wants to take on more. Be the president of the SBC too, the whole Southern Baptist Convention. When he really should have just went and got another job and quit and tried to look after his family. Maybe his son would have still ran around in girls' clothes and still OD'd on drugs. I don't know. But I just know if you've got that situation at home, you don't need to be a pastor. And I think that's biblical. So what can we do at Pull Pit and Pen? Write a story? You can't write a story like that. you got to think, like, what about, the, what about the kid's mom? What about the family? You don't want to put this out there publicly in a story. And this and like that's what the secular media would do to somebody running for office in October to probably you know sink them for the Democrats like they did to Roy Moore. That's a great example. Look what the news did to Roy Moore when they needed that Alabama when the left wanted that Alabama Senate seat. I really don't want to run that play in denominational politics. So. You lose if you run the play in the nominational politics. And by the way, you lose if you sink Clint Presley in June because they'll just replace it with somebody who's even worse. And that's the tipping point problem. Maybe I'll call this Clint Presley and the tipping point. It just doesn't matter who wins. Because the people voting and giving money don't have any sense. Thanks for listening, or, you know, they have some, but not a lot. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute, Lord willing. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless, and as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved.